Okay, our lesson today on Live Like Jesus is the beginning of a study through the epistle or letter of the Apostle Paul to the brethren at the Church of Christ in Rome. Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 will be the main text of our study today. And there we read, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for our obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. You know, the Apostle Paul was an amazing writer. I have been enthralled with his literary ability for a very long time. It easily surpasses the greats in other literary circles. His writing is filled with blessings and curses, instructions and pleas, poetry, songs, didactic teaching, and so forth. His philosophy that is found in his writing is a full cut above other thinkers of his time. As one sees in the book of Acts written by one of his longtime companions in travel, Paul's training and Paul's intuition is very great. The book of Romans has been called, and I think accurately, the chief writing of the New Testament. It is a summation and compilation of all of Paul's teaching. Nearly everything he taught in his other letters has found its way into the book of Romans. There are comparisons that are unequaled in other letters, such as flesh and spirit, grace and works, faith and law, light and dark, sin and holiness. Romans contains major treatises on the works of the Spirit in that he, the Holy Spirit, imparts life, bestows freedom, supplies power, intercedes for the people of God, and is the sanctifying agency in the pledge of common glory. The book of Romans shows the law of the Old Testament in its proper grandeur and its faults, and as it was given to the people by the revelation of God and his will. It was given for the health and preservation of the human race. It was given to bring light and to be a schoolmaster, to lead sinners, to cast themselves on the pardon and grace of God. Finally, the book of Romans and the Old Testament law provides guidance for the believer's life. Romans itself has 16 chapters, 433 verses, 7,111 words. Its key chapters, in my opinion, are chapters 6, 7, and 8. The main concepts in the book are faith, righteousness, grace, law, and sin. Romans teaches us that God's righteousness is needed, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. That God's righteousness has been provided, chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 8, verse 29. That God's judgment is vindicated, chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 36, shows us how righteousness is to be practiced in our everyday lives, chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13, and contains one of the grandest collections uh, or conclusions in the entire Word of God, chapter 15, verse 14, through chapter 16, verse 27. 
It appears that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans or the epistle to prepare the brethren in Rome for his own visit to build up their faith and possibly gain financial support, moral support, and prayer support for him and his labors. Historically, the Apostle Paul mentions 27 co-workers in the book of Romans. Romans was likely written from Corinth in the winter of A.D. 57 or 58. Paul dictated the epistle and Tertius wrote it out in manuscript form. We read the, uh, the record of this in Romans 16, verse 22 through 23, where the apostle writes or concludes, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greet you. And Quartus, a brother. This is likely, by the way, the same Gaius, the one who was playing host to Paul and his company, that Paul baptized in Corinth some time later. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, we read where Paul thanks God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, we read of Erastus staying in Corinth, but Trophimus being left in Miletus sick. All these were cities and towns in the Macedonian uh, peninsula and, co and country. The church was already formed and matured to some extent by the time that Paul wrote the epistle. How the congregation was formed or established is a matter of grand speculation, but has zero to no biblical evidence. And extra biblical evidence is too divided to be reliable. The best conclusion then is that the Jews who were in Jerusalem during the Pentecost described in Acts that were at Rome or from Rome, when they finally returned home, established the congregation and it grew and spread. Now, there are some detractors for that that we won't get into, but that's my best or favorite conclusion at this point in time. Two of the pillars of the Christian community are found first in Rome, Priscilla and Aquila, may have been among that number that established the church in the city of Rome. Now, there's very little debate that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to Rome. Some interesting facts about the Apostle are as follows. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. This is important. Benjamin was the youngest of Jacob's sons, born on the road between Bethel and Bethlehem. He was the son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite and chosen wife. Saul, the first king of Israel that turned very wicked, was also from Benjamin. Mordecai, the cousin or uncle of Esther, a leader and governor among the people of Israel, of the Jewish people during their final days in exile, was also from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul, or Paul, was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, a free Roman city, by the decree of Augustus Caesar. Tarsus is said to have surpassed Alexandria and Athens in learning. Regarding his birth date, we only know that he was a young man when Stephen was stoned. It's not known how Paul's father earned his freedom or his citizenship. Neither is it known at what age the Apostle Paul, as a young man, went to study at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel, by the way, has been reckoned the most important and influential scholar in Jewish history outside of Moses. The closest contenders to that are Jeremiah and Ezra. He is likely... He likely, the Apostle Paul likely decided to take advantage of Sister Phoebe's planned trip to Rome 
to send them a letter. In Romans 16, verse 1 and 2, we read where he commends her. He says, I commend you to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Now, Paul had clear reasons for writing the book, the letter or epistle, but he didn't have specific and serious problems that he had to address like he did in Galatians or like he did in Corinth. First of all, he wants to inform the brethren there of his planned visit. He asked for prayer and for encouragement. And he desired to make it possible that the beliefs and lifestyles of the Roman Christians to be in harmony with the gospel message. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 11 verse 36 unfold and reveal God's reasoned presentation of his eternal plan. And they press, it presses the exclusive claims of Christianity, uh, tells us of God's way of saving man is only in the gospel. It answers standard objections that the apostle Paul had heard over and over. Paul may have been aware that he was right in scripture, we're not sure at this point in time. He talks about the needs of the saints to protect and enlarge their reputation, to become established in the gospel and in doctrine, to evangelize their community and the world, to encourage each other in unity and growth, and to watch out for false teachers. Paul gave his uh, theme to the epistle early on. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, we read, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Today with God's help, we will consider Paul's greetings. It's really a very long sentence. Verse 1 through 5 is only a portion of it, about two-thirds. As is the case with a large amount of Paul's writing, there's some personal information. He includes his credentials, and there's a lot of doctrine to be found in these words. We, of course, are going to be focusing on the doctrine. Now, there's four divisions in chapter 1. There's an introduction, verse 1 through 7. Paul's relationship to the church in Rome, verse 8 through 15, the theme of the epistle, verse 16 and 17, and the Gentiles' need for salvation, verse 18 through 32. Chapters 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about the Jews' equal need for salvation. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. There's three things that we learn here about Paul and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. First of all, we learned that the Apostle Paul was a bondservant. The word bondservant is Greek word for doulos, which means slave. Paul claimed, he claimed the position of a slave. Unlike some men today who consider themselves great in the kingdom of God and wish to exercise their authority over others or show their knowledge off, the Apostle Paul was bound completely to his master's disposal. But there's more here than casually meets the eye. Some translations also use the word slave in place of bondservant. We will for the rest of the discussion today. Here, slave is the name of honor. 
And in some places, Paul is in very respectable company. Moses is called the slave of God in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the slave of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. This honorable title denotes the high authority that the Apostle Paul possessed in the kingdom of Christ. The word slave is also used to describe one's voluntary relationship status to Jesus Christ. And this is where it becomes very personal and very key doctrine for our studies today. Paul was not a friend of Christ. Jesus was not Paul's co-pilot. Paul was Jesus' slave. We need to understand what that means. A slave is one who has chosen to place themselves completely at their master's disposal. In this case, Paul chose to place himself completely at Jesus' disposal. This term is expressive of total and complete allegiance. A slave is one who is owned by Jesus Christ's body and soul. In Romans chapter 6, we read, beginning in verse 15, where Paul's philosophy and logic explains it like this. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves to whom you obey? Whether of sin lead into death or of obedience lead into righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were the slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your, body, your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were the slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then? In the things of which you are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This term is expressive of bondage. Many people today are ashamed of this concept. We are too often unwilling to risk our health or our wealth, our comfort, our convenience for the cause of the master. But this is what a slave-master relationship looks like. We should not ever, not ever, not once shun hardship or difficulty when it comes to obeying the master's wishes. Slaves endure such with joy for their Lord. However, our slaveship, our slavehood, our bondage, is not a bondage of degradation and enslavement, but rather it's a bondage to the will of God in Christ. This is, in fact, the best form of freedom. Freedom to do right, freedom from sin, freedom from the fear of death. This is not vassalage, but the very perfection of freedom, the very perfect realization of what liberty is all about. I'd like you to know, too, that doulos, the word for bondservant or servant or slave, depending on your translation, implies that all Christians are slaves of Christ. 
because Jesus purchased them with his own blood. You and I have been bought with a price, a very precious, precious price. We see secondly in verse 1 that the Apostle Paul was a called apostle. Now some versions are going to have called an apostle. That's a poor rendering of a great statement, a great phrase. The translations that render this called to be, um, called to be an apostle lessen the import of Paul's calling in his life. Paul's apostleship was equal to that of the other apostles. He met all the requirements. He had seen the resurrected Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you not my work in the Lord? A little bit later in the same letter, the first letter to Corinth, he says in chapter 15, verse 8, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul met the qualification of having seen Jesus after the resurrection. Having seen and known the resurrected Lord. The Apostle Paul, secondly, we see, received his commission from Christ. Listen to this now. The Apostle Paul was directed, invited, commissioned by the Lord directly, not by a group of men. Now that came later, but that was very secondary. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, we read Paul, an apostle, get this, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Again, we read the Lord's commission to the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, verse 15 through 18. So I said, Who are you, Lord? The Apostle Paul asked. And he, Jesus, answered, said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuted. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom... I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, God attested to his discipleship, to his apostleship, by giving him a direct commission through Jesus Christ. Secondly, God attested to his apostleship by giving him miraculous power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, we read, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 6, we read specifics about those signs and wonders. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Understand, please, the word apostle means one who is sent out from. In the present sense, understanding terms, it means one who is sent from Christ by Christ. And here it becomes and serves as a high official title. Paul and the other 11 were appointed directly by Jesus Christ. There are no other apostles. There are no modern apostles. Apostles. Any man who claims such is a heretic, perhaps even a lunatic, but certainly a heretic. We see 
lastly in this verse, verse 1, that the Apostle Paul was set apart. He was set apart for the gospel of God. Paul had been set apart on the road to Damascus. He was set apart again by the congregation at Antioch, Acts chapter 13, verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. They were separated for a special mission. We understand that the gospel of God is called such because it has God as its author. The Apostle Paul borrows the terminology from Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 66, where the Hebrew prophets of old time proclaimed the good news of the release of the Babylonian captivity, captives. This is mirrored. This is foreshadowed in the writings and the proclamations of the New Testament uh, uh, preachers who proclaimed the release from captivity of sin that has been purchased by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's just verse 1. Now let's look at verse 2. This is short, very simply, a direct reference to the Old Testament scriptures which proclaimed the coming of the good news. The gospel belongs to God because it was sent by God. He promised it through the Old Testament scriptures and prophets. This forced the Jews of Paul's day to either accept the gospel as revealed in Jesus Christ or reject their own prophets and writings. They could not reject them. Neither can we. Not if we're honest. We cannot because of the continuity of the message preached from the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 all the way through the New Testament. There God proclaims that the serpent will strike the heel, but the, the person whose heel was struck will crush the head of the serpent. This comes to its fullest realization in the garden. This comes to its fullest realization on the hill of Calvary when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hung suspended between heaven and earth and crushed the head of the enemy even though he was wounded and killed for a short time. Verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. His son, of course, refers back to the gospel of God, which is the good news. This is the evangelium. This is the message that is to be proclaimed throughout the whole world regarding the Son of God, who willingly gave up his place in heaven, took on mortal sinful flesh and suffered for all men and then rose triumphant over death, hell, and the grave. We see that this man, Jesus Christ, was the seed of David. He was descendant of King David that we read about in the Old Testament that wrote so many of the Psalms. This demonstrates the Apostle Paul's knowledge and belief in the virgin birth. The idea of being born of is sometimes translated became. And that's a correct translation because it shows the existence of the Son of God prior to his incarnation. It shows him existent as a, in a pre-existent state before he became flesh. The flesh is a reference to both sides of Jesus' human ancestry. And this is very interesting discussion and very interesting studies that we don't have time for, but a very brief synopsis this morning. His mother, Mary's lineage, is in harmony with the conclusion that Matthew's genealogy is that of Joseph 
And Luke's genealogy is that of Mary. This is how one explains the differences, the apparent differences on the list. Jesus is of David's lineage then in two senses, legally through Joseph. Joseph would have been recognized in Jewish circles as the legal representative of the family, and it was necessary that Jesus cover that base. And actually, Jesus was the, of the lineage of David through Mary's physical form from whom Jesus inherited his body. Verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This is a contrast. According to the flesh in verse 3, according to the Spirit in verse 4. The flesh of the seed of David, of the tribe of Judah, of Joseph and Mary's uh, flesh and, and of their descendants. According to the Spirit is a reference to his own eternal spirit, not the Holy Spirit, which is sometimes often misapplied here. The third person of the Godhead is not in consideration in this instance. Rather, this is Christ's own spirit. In other words, the Lord was in the flesh, the son of Mary, but in the spirit, he was the son of God which makes him, by the way, equal to God. His actions on earth as a man without sin demonstrate his sonship and his divinity or his godness. Only divinity could live a life like he lived without sin, without uh, any deviation from the law. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is sometimes considered as the point that Jesus became divine. That is false understanding. He was divine before he was born. He didn't become God's son on account of or by virtue of his resurrection. Rather, the resurrection marked him out distinctively as God's son. It is the ultimate proof, if you will, of his divinity. Verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Grace and apostleship. The word here translated grace and apostleship are the phrase that comes from a word in Greek indicates a gift that is given and it is unmerited. And it also demonstrates a special election to a special service. Moses Lard intones that the grace mentioned here is the same general grace given to all men. The Apostle Paul had special grace in the vision on the road to Damascus. But the salvation that Paul received and was offered is the same grace that is given even to you and to me and to every man and woman and boy and girl on the face of the earth. The special call that Paul received, his commission, if you will, that we talked about a few minutes ago on the road to Damascus was sent to set him apart to serve God in preaching to the Gentiles. Grace and apostleship both come from Jesus Christ. The call and the result of the call did not depend on the call. It did not depend on the caller. It depended on the recipient, just like it does today. The special favor that was given to the Apostle Paul in calling him to the work to preach to the Gentiles depended on Paul's accepting that commission. You know, he could have hardened his heart. 
But his response to the divine call of salvation and to the divine appointment as an apostle to the Gentiles, God set him aside, even though he could have rejected the grace and the apostleship. The next phrase in this verse is to be considered as obedience of the faith. Or as Moses Lard translated, obedience of belief. This is one of the more problematic verses in this chapter. Grace and apostleship, are they the same thing? Are obedience and faith the same? If they're not, how are they related? In this instance, we typically believe that the latter two are codependent concepts. Obedience is now and always has been required of mankind in his relationship to God. It was so in the Old Testament. It is now so in the New Testament dispensation. In the Old Testament, men were required to obey the covenant, the law of Moses, the old law. Today, men are required to obey the law of Christ. In other words, obedience to the faith expresses the concept that belief or faith is in fact an act of obedience. This is contrary to both Roman Catholic and Protestant views. They each view faith as gifted. If they are divided, obedience would represent conformity to divine will, which it does, and belief is the mental conviction from which the obedience springs. Accordingly, we understand from this phrase in this verse that the Apostle Paul received the grace and undeserved favor and mercy of God in God revealing who Jesus is on the Damascus Road experience. And the Apostle Paul received a special call or appointment to the apostleship. That is him being the one sent from Jesus Christ, remember apostle means sent one, to the Gentiles for the express purpose to cause men to obey Jesus Christ to obey not out of fear, not out of peer pressure, but to obey based on conviction of the principles of the Christian religion. The last phrase in this verse that we want to consider is for his name. We talked about it early in the lesson. The Apostle Paul is a bondservant, a slave. Everything he does, every ounce and more and fiber of his being is for the master. This harkens back all the way to verse 3. Paul demonstrates that Jesus Christ is both the subject of the gospel and the object of the gospel. Here Paul states unequivocally that his purpose in preaching the gospel was to bring glory to and honor to Jesus Christ all over the world, in all the world. We see him in his years of service, in his many sufferings and trials, giving himself totally to this grand objective. That of bringing glory to God. This is what a servant or a slave will constantly do. He will seek the honor of his master before, during, and while involved in everything else. Now we have just a few more things we want to say regarding the teaching that is found here in verses 1 through 5. The faith that saves brings glory to Jesus Christ when it is obeyed from the heart without any quibbling, a faith of obedience is what this faith is. One is justified not by some mysterious gift that is given 
Faith is not a gift that is given, but faith, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 17, is based on the knowledge, on the assent of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Secondly, we see that this faith saves by the assenting confession that is commanded throughout Scripture. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus himself said that whosoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, where Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, we know what happened here. The eunuch said, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe, you can. If you believe with all your heart, if you're convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you can be. And the eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Apostle Paul expresses the same concept, the same uh, process in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 11 where he says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes unto righteousness with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for the scripture says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame this expresses a confidence that stems from such acknowledgement of the facts of Jesus' divinity, of his death, burial, and resurrection. And the com confidence and the acknowledgement of such ultimately leads to obedience to Jesus Christ, or obedience to the faith that Jude exhorted us to contend for, that was once delivered for all, to all, once for all delivered to the saints in Jude verse 3. These verses single-handedly take down Mr. Martin Luther's supposition that James and Paul were antagonistic to each other. James clearly says in James chapter 2, verse 17, Thus also by faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by faith when he offered Isaac to his, his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Catch that again. By works faith was made perfect. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. The apostle Paul is in full agreement with James when he says, when he talks about the obedience of the faith here in verse 5. Also in verse 8 in chapter 1. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout all the world. 
verse chapter 16, verse 19. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Paul clearly demonstrates that real faith is something that expresses itself in actions that others can see. Faith without works is dead. At the very onset of this great doctrinal treatise on to the, the Roman congregation, the Apostle Paul establishes the fact that works must accomplish faith. And as we progress through the study of this great book, we will begin to see and understand what kind of works are being talked about. But that is enough for today. May God richly bless you.